Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wool on us. Fighting and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Before we get started, I just want to again mention that we are perilously close to the 300th episode of the podcast. Uh, Today is number 299. So uh, if you are hearing this on Tuesday or Wednesday, right after the podcast has been released on Thursday of this week, which is the 30th, Uh, At 1 p.m. Pacific time or 4 p.m. Eastern, we will be attempting to live stream the recording of our 30th, sorry, 300th episode and in the process, bringing back our original two co-hosts, Dennis Yang and Hirsch Reddy. For those of you who happen to have listened to us for the first two or three years of the podcast, you may remember them. Uh, We will post the details on TechTurt where you can watch the live stream uh, and uh, we will also... Because if you're going to do one experiment, why not do multiple experiments? We'll not just be experimenting with live streaming. This platform that we are using will allow us to experiment with live call-ins, should anyone actually want to do that. And uh, we are going to make that available to the folks who back us on Patreon. So if you are a Patreon backer, expect an email or Perhaps by now you have gotten an email. And if you are not a Patreon backer, this is a good excuse for you to become a Patreon backer. So now on to the more important stuff, which is today's podcast. Uh, Over the last few years, disinformation has been a major, major topic of discussion across a number of different fields. Stories about disinformation have been key in reporting on politics, technology, and certainly over the last year and a half, healthcare. Uh, I wonder why that is. (laughs) But uh, there is something of a problem in much of that coverage, and that is that it's not always clear what disinformation actually means or what it is that anyone is supposed to do about it. Uh, For many people, it's a kind of I know it when I see it sort of thing. But sometimes that means that uh, figuring out what what disinformation is and what to do about it is extremely subjective. Is making a mistake disinformation? Is having out-of-date or obsolete information disinformation? Is having factual information but implying something inaccurate about it disinformation? And what is the impact of it? If it is disinformation, and then what do you do about it? It turns out that when you actually dig in on all of these questions, uh, the issue of disinformation becomes a lot trickier. So uh, Joe Bernstein is a senior reporter for BuzzFeed News on the tech beat and spent much of 2021 as a Neiman fellow exploring the concept of disinformation, which eventually resulted in him writing a massive and very thought-provoking Harper's cover story called Disinformed, How We Get Fake News Wrong, uh, that I highly recommend to everyone listening to this. If you have not yet read it, please do. Uh, we I wrote about it earlier on TechTurt, and we'll link to it again in the podcast show notes. Uh, so please read it, but uh, listen to this podcast first, I guess. <laughs> uh, the article puts much of the debate on disinformation to what I think is a very different perspective. And so I am pleased to have him on the podcast today to better inform rather than disinform all of us about disinformation. So Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Mike. And, um, you know, you have a 300th show coming up. 
Um, so thanks for not doing like a Simpsons style clip show for your 299th <laughs> show. I really appreciate being <laughs> Being a guest. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, we should have we should have done disinformation about the podcast. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so, just start out by can you just give us kind of a quick summary of the thesis um, of your article, or even sort of you know what you um, intended to write about if if the end result was different, or or you know if if the end result was exactly what you thought it was going to be. I'm, I'm just kind of curious about how the article came about. Yeah. Um, so uh, for many years, I've written about the kind of intersection of internet and politics, internet and culture, kind of, you know, rich area that a lot of reporters have gotten interested in over the past, you know, five to eight years. Um, and um, I think I have a pretty strong ear for jargon, and I think most reporters should. Uh, and, uh, you know, like most reporters, like most people working in this space, um, I started to notice, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, these these terms, disinformation and misinformation being used somewhat interchangeably. And, uh, you know, I would think to myself, well, you know, what do these terms mean? Um, do people have the same thing in mind when they're talking about them? And like, who gets to define these words? And in fact, if they're kind of squishy, like, you know, like, you know, it's interesting you use that, um, like the old Supreme Court pornography standard. I know it when I see it. <laughs> Because like, well, who's who's I, and you know how are you looking at it, right? I mean that the eye of the beholder becomes very important, and so I was kind of annoyed by the use of the word. And usually, when I'm annoyed at the use of a word, I try and think harder about it, um, about the sort of like claims that are being made, and like who is trying, you know, who is positioning themselves as an authority, and particularly when words that kind of have like a scientific connotation or like an empirical connotation, which I think disinformation and misinformation do and get away with not sort of defining the empirical like qualities and stakes. Um, so I was already annoyed by this, doing a lot of reporting in this world. And um, I knew I wanted to write something about it. Um, what really made this story click uh, I, I sort of had the idea that the sort of disinformation idea was a bit of a move at times to sort of like reinsert journalistic objectivity, which is an idea that, you know, journalists have spent a lot of time over the sort of same time period becoming disillusioned with. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was almost like a quasi-scientific replacement for this untenable idea of journalistic objectivity. But what really made it sing, um, or at least sort of connect in my head, was when I read this book by Tim Wong, um, mm -hmm. which is sort of about how internet advertising, much of it is a house of cards. Um, it's based on uh, a commodity, attention that is not nearly as standardizable as we think. Um, and that if we're going to question kind of like the, the, the nature of um, the effectiveness of advertising as a persuasive like uh, form on the internet, we should be thinking about all kinds of advertising, including political advertising. And political advertising is sort of the biggest uh, like AAA category of disinformation. Um, and so once I sort of came up with the idea that, um, or, or once the idea in my head, I don't want to say that I came up with this idea, I mean, maybe <laughs> other people have had it, that the disinformation critique actually supports in many ways uh, the foundations of um, Facebook's business model, for example, um, then I don't want to say it wrote itself, but, um, 
I think that was one of the things I sort of provocative things I wanted to to um, to try and get across that in fact the greatest or at least the most popular criticism of the content platforms may in fact be um, strengthening their power and control. Yeah, and I think that's worth really kind of highlighting and explaining clearly because I think when people talk about disinformation and the concept of like disinformation helping Facebook, they mean something very different than what you mean when you're saying that, right? Because the way most people talk about it is like, oh yeah, disinformation, the, the, the standard line is that disinformation leads to engagement. Engagement is good. Facebook likes disinformation for that reason. That is, that's not what you're saying. You're, you're explaining something very different, but I think a really important explanation, right? Yeah, I should say both things can be true. I mean, sure. I think there's something uh, absolutely. That. There's uh, truth in all of these things. Right, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, and part of the problem is Facebook has all the data, and so we just don't know. Um, that argument is a much more common argument. My argument uh, is that uh, Facebook makes money by selling the idea that it can persuade people um, to to uh, people with ad budgets, ad budgets to spend, um, and the disinformation critique of Facebook, of YouTube, of, you know, of these platforms. Uh, it's predicated on the idea that uh, fake news, that disinformation and misinformation are just like inherently extremely persuasive, that they just, that they work. Uh, and there's not that much empirical evidence, or at least the empirical evidence, uh, it's not like 100% clear that that claim is true. Right. But if we accept that claim, that fake news, that disinformation, that misinformation really change people's minds in a predictable way, we're actually supporting Facebook's business proposition, which is that we have a death ray of persuasion. And uh, if you want to make money, you know, you need to you need to advertise with us. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that the. the... The simplest way of thinking about that is that if it's true that disinformation is really persuasive and that people seeing some level of disinformation immediately get swept up into all sorts of, you know, radicalization or other things, that would mean that if you want to convince someone to vote for you, you know, through real information or not, you should buy ads on Facebook, right? So that, that's kind of the underlying argument about how, like, if people truly believe that that disinformation works and that Facebook spreads dis disinformation, then hell yeah, you want to advertise on Facebook, right? Right, totally. Um, I mean, there's no better pitch to, to give someone who has, uh, like, an ad budget to spend. And what I wanted to do in this piece is give a little bit of, uh, at least point out, that uh, it is in Facebook's interest to be perceived as persuasive as possible. And right. also that there's a long history of people selling ad space. Uh, their product, the thing they sell to the people who buy their product, is they have to persuade people that they are persuasive. <laughs> right. uh, and so the disinformation critique can be seen as part of that persuasion itself. Yeah, and, and you talk in the, the article, which I thought was really good, about a lot of the history there too, right? Where, you know, the the advertising industry has spent many years trying to persuade people that, you know, that advertising works. And it's not clear if it, if it really does, right? Right, yeah. So to go back to this book, um, the, this book by Tim Wong, it's called Subprime Attention Crisis. And I, I you know, I suggest people read it. Um, 
the, the promise of internet advertising is that it can measure much more effectively uh, who is converted into a customer by looking at an ad than to television advertising or print advertising. And to some extent, I think that's true. Um, but the, the thing it measures, human attention, uh, it, Wong's point, is that that's not a standardizable commodity. Uh, and you know, all you need to do to realize that that's the case is think about the sheer amount of ad fraud, which we know is just rampant on the internet. Uh, fat finger clicks. Um, you know, we know some huge amount of like mobile uh, clicks are, are, are unintentional or so-called fat finger clicks. And then the bigger problem, and this has been a problem with advertising uh, for a long time, and uh, you know, economists have talked about this, is that it's very difficult to disentangle correlation from causation. So like, um, let's say you, Mike, um, are in the market for a car and you like Toyotas, and then you see an ad for a Toyota. Does that mean that Toyota's money was well spent serving you that ad? Uh, or were you likely to buy a Toyota anyway? Um, and so I think we can think about disinformation, uh, certainly in the case of political advertising, but in, in, in many different contexts in the same way. Is someone who is skeptical about the vaccine, uh, or, or is, uh, you know, are, are the people who are posting about how the vaccine doesn't work, or you know, is a, you know, comes with a microchip with Bill Gates' face on it, um, <laughs> are these people who um, are like, neutral about the question of uh, getting a vaccine? Are they people who were pro-vaccine before? Or are they people who were already skeptical for a variety of reasons, um, political reasons, cultural reasons, you know, what have you, about vaccines, conspiratorial, um, and they then share information like this? So, you know, I, mean, th I think there's some research about how people tend to share information in a way that is more like the way you root for a sports team. It's, it's, I mean, there, there is, I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I couldn't tell you the, the author of the paper. I read so much uh, social science this year, but you know, there's an assumption I think by some of the media that like, if someone is sharing some crappy information, um, that that means that they've like, ha you know, been brainwashed by it. When in fact they may just be like a Republican or like, <laughs> you know, a, someone who like wants to buy, to who likes Toyotas, like a Toyota. Um, you, you take my point. And so the question is, you know, more broadly, is the internet reflecting things? Are these platforms reflecting existing social dynamics or creating new social dynamics? I think the truth is somewhere in the middle, yeah. but I think the debate has, has listed too far towards the latter, that the internet is just creating this new reality that we can't, you know, the internet is the is the is the unmoved mover, you know, and and I think I, I, in this piece I really wanted to push back against that idea. And, and and I think obviously there's some truth to all of these things, right? I don't think and I, you know with all these things there's not one answer, and there are these different elements, and then you can add on a layer on top of that, which is like, you know, what if you're you know, sort of predisposed towards believing these things. And then if you are seeing it constantly, you know, there is a confirmation bias there, but it might, might push you stronger towards that, that viewpoint. But, but there's a lot of nuance in there in terms of how do you then deal with that, right? Because if we were to just take down all the disinformation, that doesn't necessarily make you less predisposed to believing those, those kinds of false information. And so, I think the point that, that you were trying to make or what I got out of the article, which I thought was really valuable, is that this is all a hell of a lot more complicated and there are a lot more variables and a lot more nuance than most of the debate around it. 
Yeah, and like one of the things I've been struggling with recently, and I'm not always sure how to respond, is like, I, you know, I heard from a college friend who works in DC, who's like, you know, I read this piece, it's so interesting. He spent so much time thinking about it. He, he you know, he works on the hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, you don't give us a solution. <laughs> and, and like, and I, I've been struggling with that because yeah. like, you know, you'll get accused on Twitter of being like a complexity bro or a nuance <laughs> bro. And like, you know, that's a new I, one. I, I haven't heard that actually. <laughs> oh, Mike, I hope you're never accused of being a nuance bro. Um, but, um, you know, these problems seem and or are extremely urgent. Uh, there are stories coming out every day about Facebook's just because it's the biggest and, you know, kind of most hated negligence, um, malfeasance. Uh, and people feel, I think, you know, to some degree, rightly, that their worlds are changing really fast and that social platforms have something to do with that. And so the desire for a solution, any solution, a quick solution uh, now for action now, it's 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 an imperative. I mean, it's there. That mood is there. People want to see uh, something happen to Facebook, uh, whether that is antitrust, whether it is 230 reform. And, you know, what I would say is, okay, maybe those things need to happen, but I'm not sure they're going to solve the problems that you think exist. And they may create, I mean, this is not really what I wanted to get into with the piece, but like, if you expect breaking up Facebook to solve for, like, for example, off that Wall Street Journal story, uh, body image problems in teenage girls or um, people sharing shitty political um, lies, you're going to be really disappointed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, 230 is a different can of worms or a different kettle of fish. But, you know, as we see off of that uh, decision in this uh, high court in Australia, you know, that presents its own issues. And so, you know, I think slowing down at a time when most people are saying, holy shit, we need to do something. There's some value to that. And like, if that gets me tarred as a, um, as a complexity <laughs> bro, you know, so be it. <laughs> you should make a sign. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and like, the, cause you know, I get accused of that all the time, like not presenting a solution. And it's like, you know, some of these problems it's not clear what the solution is, but you can still point out that like the solutions that are being proposed might make things worse or at at the very least are unlikely to solve this problem or to create other problems. And that is, you know, it, 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 I I understand why that is unsatisfying and it's unsatisfying for, you know, the people who are, you know, reading what, what either of us write or the politicians whose job it is to do something. Right. Um, But, you know, it's important, right? You know, if everybody is, is misdiagnosing the problem, the solution is not going to fix it, right? No, and in some ways, like, um, sorry to cut you off, but like in some ways, I've been thinking about this recently, this kind of like solutionism uh, is, a, is, is almost an echo of the very thing we criticize the tech <laughs> yes. industry for. Absolutely. It's, it, it is funny, right? Because that's that for the longest time, everyone's been saying that the, the tech bros, if we're doing all the bros here, you know, the, the tech bros look at everything as like, well, here's a problem. Here's here's a technology that will will solve it. And it feels like, you know, what you exactly you're exactly right. What we're seeing from the policy side are should we call them policy bros? I don't know where, where they're just like, you know, there's there's a regulation that will solve this. And, right. you know, that is that is rarely the case and and also like 
not to defend either side here, right? Because I think I think all of the sort of solutionism ha- has its problems, but like at least with the technology side, uh, um, this is coming off the top of my head. I'm not sure where this is going to end up, but, but but with the technology side, the general way that you implement it is you have a thesis, you build something, you put it out in the world, and you see if it works, and then you iterate. That doesn't happen so much on the policy side, right? I mean, the policy side, you create a law, you put that in place, and you say, okay, we've solved this problem, we're done. Like we're not going to revisit this for another 20 years until we've seen the disaster that we've created with these policy decisions, and then suddenly maybe we'll look at it, but most likely we'll misdiagnose the a new problem that was caused by the, by the old regulation and come up with some other horrible solution. And that's, that's not to, you know, that's not to say that like we shouldn't do anything and the, that, that, you know, the, the policy folks shouldn't be co- trying to come up with stuff, but we, we need, you know, we need to be able to take a, a, a wider view of these things and like a slightly more humble view that like each of these decisions, whether it's the technology solutions or the policy solutions will have an impact. And we're not doing much to actually, you know, look at what that impact is other than, you know, 15 years later, suddenly deciding like, Oh, Hey, the world really sucks and we need to do something about it. But, but really not going back and looking at, at why, you know, this is something that I've been thinking a lot about lately. Cause I, I've been working on a paper, who knows when it's going to come out, so I shouldn't shouldn't even mention it. <laughs> but but that that is looking at like laws that were passed in like the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s that maybe contributed to to the situation that now everybody's complaining about. But nobody's looking at those laws other than Section 230. Like that's the only law that that everyone is like, oh, right. well, that was that was done in 1996. It's like, well, you know. What about the Patent Act in 1952 that created like all of these other problems? Or what about, you know, the DMCA that created all of these other problems? What about the CFAA? There are all of these issues that have come up that I think have resulted in the world that we're in today. And they're all interconnected. And so it's not a situation where you just fixed one and you're suddenly going to solve these things. And so, you know, and on top of that, I'm I'm going off on a rant here. No, please. It's, uh, I'm enjoying <laughs> uh, <you> know, it. <laughs> on top of that, right? I mean, a lot of these problems are really at their core. Not all of them, but a lot of them are societal problems, right? Problems with, with you know, misinformed people, people who are prone to believing complete nonsense about vaccines, for example, is that a technology problem? Is that an educational problem? Is that, you know, a problem of how certain societies are, you know, certain groups of people, certain communities are being left behind. Certain communities don't have good jobs and are looking for someone to blame for that. There are all sorts of these complex societal problems that we have never solved going back centuries, right? And these all contribute to these things. And yet we're saying like, well, if we just got rid of Section 230, maybe that would fix society. <laughs> right. By the way, a lot of our like lack hour, a lot of like upper middle class, like right thinking, uh, educated America's ignorance of these problems was based around and was enabled by a media that that uh, essentially were gatekeepers. Uh, yeah. and, and kept us from seeing these problems. So like, for example, it's a really, really good book I read by Paul Matsko is a libertarian historian called the radio, right? Yeah. Uh, which is about, um, essentially the, the historical precursors to modern right-wing talk radio. They were, um, they were extremely sort of rabid far right radio preachers, 
uh, anti-communist radio preachers who did a lot of essentially organizing. Uh, and, uh, you know, I guess they sort of appealed to like Goldwater Republicans um, and religious conservatives. And, you know, a lot of their concerns and their rhetoric were like recognizably proto-Trumpian. And the like average guy who's coming home from his job in, you know, Greenwich, Connecticut or Bethesda or, you know, Winnetka or wherever, doesn't know that these people even exist, even though it's an audience of millions. Um, he doesn't know at all about like black radio in the South, about, um, you know, the sort of like deep, deep, like you're saying these like social issues. And so, you know, social media has, you know, engendered a lot of problems, but it's also allowed a lot of existing like bad festering problems to see the light of day. And one of the things that I wanted to do in this piece is bring those two conversations together. Like the death of the gatekeepers was not just a bad thing. I mean, <laughs> the media has a lot of problems, but it's certainly yeah. more diverse than it's ever been. Uh, and I think a lot of that is because of pressure, you know, from, uh, from social media. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, I just think that that's like an important thing to keep in mind when we talk about, you know, getting rid of 230 or like, you know, no one wants to think that the speech police and I don't want to sound like Glenn Greenwald or something, but no one wants to <laughs> think that the, you know, the sort of like whatever regime of authority you set up is going to come for them. But this is something I talk about in the piece. Um, the Biden administration um, released its first guidance on um, combating domestic terrorism and you know, of course it talked about, so it talks about disinformation and misinformation. And of course it talks about, you know, the kind of people who did January 6th, you know, militias, people, you know, like that, but also talks about animal rights activists. Mm -hmm. It also talks about environmental activists. Um, these are not people on the right. And in fact, uh, they are people who espouse causes that are probably fairly sympathetic to the, many of the people who want to get rid of section, you know, who want to blow up 230 or whatever. Right. Um, and so again, like, let's think a little harder about the way these ideas are related than just like act because it feels good and see what happens. Yeah. And I mean, another thing that you highlighted in the piece that I think is important and, um, is, is that a lot of the, the sort of research or, you know, um, papers around disinformation are coming out of institutions that traditionally have been sort of the elite and, and historically, you know, had the power of being gatekeepers or closely connected to the gatekeepers or having some sway or persuasion over the gatekeepers. And, and so there's, you know, not that I, I distrust, you know, like research coming out of Harvard or whatever, you know, I, I think a lot of it is good and thoughtful and careful. And I don't think they're doing this kind of stuff on purpose, but there is this sort of, you know, institutional bias built into some of the places where all of these reports and, and papers and studies on disinformation are coming out of, in which the world for them may have been a better place when there wasn't widespread social media questioning some of what they do and what they say. Right. So what it does is it puts these institutions in an inherently conservative position, uh, which, you know, they're institutions. OK, maybe institutions are inherently conservative. Right. Um, but there is yeah, there's certainly a line of criticism from like the far left, which says that this is an attempt by the kind of institutional American political center to reassert its control over the terms of the debate. 
an identical critique comes from the right. I mean, much more of the right than the left. Yeah. Um, as you say, Mike, um, I don't think there's a conspiracy. I think there's a lot of people who are do, who are working hard and doing good work. Yeah. Um, but appearance matters, and the appearance of these institutions being the people who are sort of like loudest uh, and sort of best funded on disinformation, I think that matters. Uh, I, I don't think they can sort of ignore their history in sort of um, promoting in, 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 you know, promoting a certain version of reality and then saying, wait, um, there's so much disinformation are all around us. Um, I think that like the, the kind of history of the discourse there actually matters. And like the people, like when the right and the left get mad about this, they, they, they may not be right that it's a conspiracy, but they are right that it looks bad. And (laughs) I think the people in these institutions, you know, who I know and love, you know, I just spent the year at Harvard doing a fellowship, um, need to be aware of that. Um, or else they can look very, very out of touch. Uh, and like, you know, you saw this thing in the times, the story about like, what is Biden going to do about disinformation? And in the times they suggested, uh, appointing a reality czar. (laughs) Right. And it's a little tongue in cheek, but also like, the phrase realities are should not appear in the New York Times <laughs> right. under any circumstances. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, like, I, I understand that, like, everyone is kind of struggling, right? And, and, and you know, there are these real problems out there. And, and I think that, like, part of the problem that some people have is, like, when we discuss this, you know, the way that we are, people complain that they're like, well, you're sort of minimizing the, the real problems that are out there. And I don't think that, I'm not trying to, and I don't believe you are either, but I think no. what we're, we're trying to say is that it is, it is important to understand it and, and what is really happening and what is really a, at the heart of it. And often that is a lot more complex and a lot more nuanced, whether or not that makes you a complexity or nuance bro, <laughs> you know, but, 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 but it is, and, and you're not going to be able to do things about the real problems if you don't understand, not just the, the problems themselves and the root causes of them, but also how they're all interconnected. So that if you're, you know, pushing, you know, this button or pulling this lever, how is that going to you know, impact the wider ecosystem, which is humanity itself. And, and, you know, and thinking that you can just do this one little thing and that will, you know, it's, it's, it gets back to, you know, sort of the, the crux of, uh, you're saying how persuasive is advertising. It's just like, you know, this one trick will will solve society, (laughs) right? right? You know, and governments hate it. You know, it's like, (laughs) that's not how it works. Uh, so I, I, you know, that's really funny. (laughs) This one trick will, this one trick will crush, will crush Mark Zuckerberg. That's right. That's right. You know, and, and and there is, you know, the the other element of all of this, which, which you don't necessarily get into in your paper, but I think, I think ties into this is, you know, like how much of the, the thinking also is just kind of like, well, how, how do we punish, you know, how, how, how do we punish Mark Zuckerberg? How are we punitive? Like, we can agree that like Facebook is terrible. Like I I have pretty strong feelings on like how awful I think Facebook is, but like, you know, my ideal result is that the world has, has well one like more competition in that space, but also just like that Facebook is better. Right. But you know, I I had written, this is a few years ago. I had written a post that was like, do, do people want a better Facebook or a dead Facebook? And the overwhelming response that I got from people was we just want Facebook dead. Like, like we don't want a better Facebook. And I, 
I have to admit, I cannot. That that is a a thought process and a philosophy that I don't understand. And I I I, I understand the emotional reasoning behind it, but like. At some point, it's like if it were better, and if it was actually helping society, and you know, and, and that's not to say there. I think there are areas where Facebook has been really good for society, and like the ability to communicate with people and, and be in touch with people. I also think Facebook has lots of problems, but I think if we had a world in which social media, like all of the good stuff that it does, was better, and we minimize the bad stuff, that would be a good solution. And yet people are so focused on the punitive element and and they need to punish it. You know, my appeal to those people in this piece was not explicit, but what I was trying to say, I'm not gonna weigh in on whether Facebook is good or bad. I'm just like, I I think it's probably bad, but I, you know, it's such a huge question. (laughs) Yes. Um, My feeling is that the disinformation critique in many ways as we discussed, is is supporting Facebook's value proposition. Right. And so maybe a better critique of Facebook is your value proposition is bullshit. It's a bad product. <laughs> the social graph decays the more people use it. The reason they need to buy other companies is because, like, the actual thing that Facebook does sucks. Uh, <laughs> like, right. you know, we, we actually don't know if it's that effective at making money for people. All these things, right? Like... If you actually go after the thing that they propose is worthy about their product, maybe that's a more effective way of damaging Facebook. I mean, I, I'm not even making a case. You know, I'm a reporter. I'm not saying anyone should go. Sure. Like, you know, it's not my job to damage Facebook. I just think if you want to, if you want to hit them where it hurts, let's you know, let's put their claims about you know how much money they make people to the test. Um, you know, let's ask questions that, um, and, and it it is true that disinformation critique does question Facebook's like PR that it's good for the planet. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know that there's a lot of people left, including people (laughs) who work at Facebook who think Facebook is good for the planet. So, you know, I think there are other ways to criticize Facebook. And one of them may be, you're not as valuable as you think you are, you know, you're not. Mm -hmm. And then, so like for tech reporters, there's this weird um, sort of schizophrenic response to Facebook, which is like, God, I hate Facebook. It sucks, but it's also the most powerful and influential thing in the world. Um, (laughs) And like, how do you square that circle? Um, I think you need to start asking questions about whether Facebook is actually as like powerful and, and masterful and sinister as you think. And I was tweeting about this yesterday um, my beloved former colleague and be- incredible reporter Ryan Mack had this story about how you know Facebook was going to combat negative stories in the press by like pushing pro Facebook propaganda into people's news feeds, mm-hmm. and a lot of the response on Twitter was like, "Wow, like this is proof that Facebook was evil and all along, and that there are these evil geniuses." To me, it looked like you know, like bumbling fucking morons, sorry, bumbling <laughs> morons. Um, you can, you like, can say the full point. <laughs> like who is going to see like, yeah. you know, brought to you by Facebook, Facebook cured cancer. Like who is going to look <laughs> at that and think that, you know, so I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's, I mean, it, yeah, yeah. Go, no, go ahead. I, I mean, I was going to say, I, I had issues with that story and, 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 and I, I, Ryan is great. And, and, you know, I, he's, I, I know Ryan and I think he's a great reporter. Um, but I, I thought that story was not 
one of his best, <laughs> frankly. Uh, you know, I, I think that the the like, you know, Facebook came out, and of course, Facebook is going to come to its own defense after after every negative story. <laughs> uh, but but like, you know, they sort of showed what it was that they were trying to do and presented a picture, and it was just like this silly widget that was kind of like. Facebook's innovations. It's like like any company that that sort of advertises its own products, and it's like in the same sense that like TechDirt, we have house ads uh, on the site that push people to support us on Patreon or whatever. It was kind right. of that nature of things that was very clearly like here's Facebook, here's like, but it was the kind of stuff that most people were just going to ignore totally, and it wasn't it wasn't done in sort of a nefarious way where it's like Facebook sneakily hiding pro Facebook propaganda in your newsfeed. It was a widget that was clearly labeled and was just sort of the kind of thing that almost everyone I think would just kind of pass over and, and move on. Right. And well, and, I mean, and that, but yeah, but Mike, then that goes back to the advertising piece, right? Yeah. Like when people see things that are obviously just like trying to get them to, you know, when I see, when I'm watching, like I'm a big college football fan, mm-hmm. uh, when I watch like a um, Big Ten football game, the Big Ten will run an ad about how great the Big Ten is, and and you know Ohio State will run an ad about how great Ohio yep. State is. I tune it out. Yep. <laughs> I don't care. Get back to the game. You know, right. like I, I don't know. I mean, I just think we need to bear that like amount of inherent just like human skepticism in my you know like the skepticism that comes about from living in like an ad driven society. Yeah. Um, and, and, so. And I think like there is an underlying thing here too, which, which should be thought about, which is like teaching people to be skeptical of those things, right? And and understanding right. that you know everything that you see in an advertisement is not true, and you know people learn that in different ways. But maybe that should be more explicitly put into the curriculum in schools, like how to be a skeptical news consumer or an advertising right. consumer. You know, and I think that is important, and there is importance there. Not that that not that that solves everything. Like even the most you know, skeptical news observers and consumers fall for confirmation bias all the time, right? It's it like it is an unavoidable fact that that happens, and you know, and so you, you can't do that. But like, we can teach people how to how to better deal with these things, so that in more cases they're willing to sort of you know be a little skeptical and not not assume that you know that that all this stuff is true. But I think that a lot of people learn that naturally and you just learn that over time. Like you said, you know, these are the commercials you ignore. These are the ads you ignore. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know. How yeah. I mean, some of that may be a novelty bias, like, you know, because mm-hmm. people are seeing this on the internet now for the first time. And, you know, I had a lot of people respond to this story and basically say younger people don't get affected by disinformation, but older people do mm-hmm. because they're not like equipped to be skeptical about internet advertising. I don't know if that's true. I mean, it, it's plausible. It's a plausible hypothesis. Right. Uh, again, it's hard to test because Facebook controls the data. <laughs> um, but, you yeah. know, I mean, I'm, I, I think that's as plausible a hypothesis as any, anything else. Yeah, and, and it, it could be, and it would be worth, worth exploring that and testing that and, and figuring out, like, does, does this problem solve itself as old people die? I don't know. I mean, but, but, but then you'll have the situation where there'll be something new, right? I mean, and, and what may or may not work on Facebook may be different than what works on TikTok and whatever comes after TikTok. And there's always going to be something different. And, and as right. we get older, I'm sure there will totally. be some, some new thing that we'll Yeah, I was for. about to say, in like 30 years, <laughs> my grandchildren will be saying, Saying like you know, how could you fall for this ad in the metaverse or whatever? <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, but uh, you know, I, I 
I, I think the underlying point, the underlying point to me, and I think that your paper, your your article did a really good job of sort of highlighting it, is, you know, how all of these things are a lot more interconnected and complex, and go back historically to all of these examples. I thought the you know the stuff about the advertising industry, you know, in the fifties and sixties or whatever, when when they're trying to convince everyone that you know, they're super persuasive. It was really, really telling. And, and, you know, you look at the way Facebook acts and you're like, oh yeah, you know, they're, they're kind of doing the same thing. Like, oh yeah, face, Facebook will convince you to, to vote for this person or to buy this product. And so that feeds into their narrative. And I think that's, that's a really, really valuable thing to, to, to give some perspective to, to this whole debate. So I, I really appreciate it. I think, the, as I said, I thought the article was fantastic. You know, I read it. I sat and I sort of thought about it for a couple of weeks before I wrote about it because it was just like there's so much, so much good stuff in there to kind of think about and sort of like I thought it was just super useful specifically in just kind of reframing how to, how to think about all this. Not, not even, you know, not specifically what to do about it necessarily, but to consider with all of the solutions that are out there, like how, how does this play into it when you view it through this prism? And, and so I, I, you know, thank you for, for writing it, for taking the time and, and putting that together. Uh, it was really useful to me and hopefully really useful to other people. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. I, I appreciate you reading it. I appreciate the kind words and it's great to be on, uh, on your show. Great. And uh, thanks to everyone also for listening in. And as I said, we'll be back next week. And if you hear this in time uh, or see it on TechTurt, we're going to do this live streaming experiment, which could be a complete failure. Um, but I will try and use this information to persuade you that it was a success. <laughs> and so uh, thanks again. And we will be back next week. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get.